Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you and great to be together here to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's continue to worship by taking God's word and turning together to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We took a break the last three Sundays from our study in 1 Corinthians. Uh, We looked together at Psalms 22, 23, and 24, but today we're back on track, back to this series in 1 Corinthians, and no more breaks. This is it, right through to the end of chapter 16. We're going to get through this epistle together. Follow along as I read in the seventh chapter, uh, beginning in verse 7, and I'll go as far as verse 16. And so please hear the word of the Lord. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Now, if you are visiting with us, you are thinking to yourself, what have I got myself into? Actually, if you're a regular, you might be thinking to yourself, what have we got ourselves into? This is quite, quite the passage of Scripture. It reminds me of one of the reasons why I am a firm believer in the systematic exposition of God's Word, simply because it forces you to deal with passages otherwise you would never deal with in your life. You would never go anywhere near them. If it was up to me to pick and choose what I wanted to preach on, I would most certainly avoid this passage. But here it is. It's the Word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God. And we believe that all Scripture is profitable. And so what are we going to do with this passage of Scripture? Uh, What is there in this for us, for me particularly? Hold that thought. The place to begin, if you were here a month ago, perhaps you will remember. The place to begin, I suggested, actually I affirmed at the time, is in verses 17 through 24. If we want to make sense of the entire chapter, if we want to avoid getting lost in this labyrinth in many ways, and certainly if we want to avoid extracting erroneous conclusions from this text. We better be very clear 
on what Paul says in verses 17 through 24. Because it is in the middle of the chapter, interestingly enough, that he hands us the key that unlocks the entire chapter. And so we interpret the chapter having opened the door by the key, which he himself gives us in verses 17 through 24. And I preached a sermon on those verses. It was more or less, I don't know, four or five Sundays ago. And so a quick review, all right? A review under three headings. And Rick is going to help me there at the back, bringing up three slides on the screen behind me, corresponding to these three headings so that we're clear on what Paul is saying in verses 17 through 24. And then we're able to take that and interpret the rest of the chapter as it pertains today, verses 8 through 16. All right? Clear enough? All right, slide number one then, Rick. There's the structure of verses 17 through 24. It's very intentional. It's very interesting. Paul begins with a command. We'll get there in just a moment. Just note the structure right now. Command, verse 17, do this. An illustration to help explain what he means by the command. Back to the command. Expands on it a little bit in verse 20. Another illustration to buttress the command. And then he closes the entire section with the command again. So command at the beginning, in the middle, at the end, in the middle of the chapter, the whole chapter hangs then on this command. What is it? Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. There's the command. He gives two illustrations in there as to what he means by the command. Okay, you got it? That's the structure. And so extracting from this structure and this command in particular, second slide, Rick, we derive a theme. The chapter's theme. A key, what we're going to call a key principle. And we're going to come back to it time and time again. I'm all for positive reinforcement. And so I'm going to state this theme or principle probably a dozen times at least this morning. And so here it is. It's based on verse 17. First thing we need to grasp. God has assigned a life to us before time. We enter into his secret will, the eternal decrees of God. He has assigned a life for me. In time, he has called me to this life. This pertains to my marital status. It pertains to whether or not I have children. That pertains to my, my job, my health, everything. He has called me to this life. What is my calling as a Christian? It is to lead this life. I'm a Christian. I enjoy fellowship with the Lord Jesus. I'm one with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And Christ has become to me wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He's everything to me. And now I am called to live out my identity. I am called to be a Christian in that life to which God has called me. I am to show forth the Lord Jesus. And so this means that this life is the means, the instrument, the way, the manner in which, by which, we live out our identity in Christ. All right? That's the theme, the principle. 
Next slide, Rick, the third one. And so what Paul now does in the seventh chapter is he takes that command, he takes that key principle, and he applies it. And in particular, he applies it to our marital status. He applies it in verses 17 through 24. He does apply it to our social status. He does also apply it to our, 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 if you like, our economic status. But his main interest, his main goal in the seventh chapter is to take that key principle, again, that we are to live out that life to which God has assigned us and called us for his glory. He applies it to marriage, interestingly enough. And he identifies, he speaks to five groups of people. First, verses 1 through 7, he addresses the ascetic, that individual who thinks celibacy is a higher calling and the way to a higher, greater spiritual life. We've considered those verses together. That was about a month ago in adult Sunday school. If you missed that, ooh, you missed a doozy, you can find that. I don't know if it's under the Sunday school lessons or if we put it in the, I think we probably put it in the sequence of the sermons. You'll find it on the web. You can go, you can avail yourself of that. He then speaks to the unmarried second group, verses eight and nine. Third group, the married, those who are married to a believer. Another group, verses 12 through 16, those who are married to an unbeliever. And then a final group, verses 25 through 40, the betrothed, good old-fashioned English word, the engaged. Because betrothment, I might be making up words now, that meant a lot more back in the day than engagement does today. It was something of an actual legal status. And so are, are you getting the, the chapter, verses 17 through 24, a key command, a key principle? And then Paul branches out from there and he applies it in particular to marriage. Why? Because evidently in the church at Corinth, there were a significant number of people who were thinking how. They were thinking as follows. If I want to be really spiritual, if I want to be godly, if I want to really pursue the holy life, if I want to really be a Christian, if I want to really serve the Lord, well, I need to be married. Or conversely, I shouldn't be married. Or even on top of that, I should be an ascetic, celibate. I should pursue the monastic life. There is this confusion in the church at Corinth. And, they, and there are some who actually think that their marital status in some way is a defining factor when it comes to their identity in Christ. And Paul's point is what? No, you've put the cart before the horse. It's exactly the opposite. You're a Christian. You are in Christ. Your calling now, no matter what your marital status or condition is, is to live out your identity in Christ. Christ. And so he applies it to these five groups. We've considered the first one. You will have guessed from the text we read at the introduction. Today, we're going to look at the number two, three, and four, and then we save a really good one. You won't want to miss this. If this doesn't bring you back next Sunday, I don't know what will. Verses 25 through 40, the betrothed. All right. Previous slide, Rick. And you can just leave it there, this theme, because I'm going to make reference to it repeatedly this morning. But here we go. We're off and running now. 
This group, those who are married, this is the unmarried, this is the first group we're interested in. Paul speaks to them, applying his principle or the theme right there behind me to this group, verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Let me walk you through this highlighting three things. Firstly, the issue. What's going on here? What is the issue? Let me put it in the first person singular. I've already alluded to it, but here it is again. Paul is speaking to that individual who is thinking to himself, thinking to herself as follows. I want to be spiritual. I want to be godly. I want to grow and abound in godliness. And so which is better, to get married or remain single? Which is better? Which, which, is going, which is going to make me more spiritual? Which is going to help me on my journey as a Christian? Which is going to improve better my status, my condition, my identity in Christ? What does Paul do? He takes his principle. There it is again. God has assigned us and called us to a life. We are to live out our identity in Christ by glorifying God in whatever life that is. And so he now takes that principle. He now applies it to this case, the application. And what is his application? His first point of application, verse 8, it is good to remain single. Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. He was single. And uh, yeah, if you're not married, if uh, you're, a, you're a widow, widower, um, yeah, it's good if you remain single. But what's the second point of application? Verse 9, it's also good to get married. Ninth verse. But if they cannot exercise self-control, that should be a sign from the Lord that you ought to get married. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. And so what he is doing, he is building on what he has just said in the previous verse, verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am. Yeah, sure. I wish that all were single like me. I think, you know, I'm the epitome of what everybody should be. But, huge but, each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. And so some have been given the gift of uh, living a single life. And that's good. It's great. It's fabulous. Some have been given the gift of living a married life. That too is wonderful. Please understand, he's saying to the Corinthians, your thinking is a little twisted here. You actually think your marital status, whether you're single or married, is going to make or break your spiritual life. No, 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 you don't understand. You are a Christian. You are called to live out what it means to be a Christian whether you're single or you're married, you're married or you're single, one condition is not better than the other. One condition is not superior to the other. One condition is not, is not going to make or break who and what you are in Jesus Christ. No, your identity in Christ is, is unchanging. The Spirit of God himself has made you one with him. He has called you to salvation. And now God has called you and he has appointed a life for you. And the gift he gives to you might be a single life. And the gift he gives to you might be a married life. It doesn't make any difference. What you are to do now is to live for him in it. 
and glorify him by it. That's the first group of people. Here's the second group in our text. Those who are married to a believer. Verse 10. And so to the married. And so you notice that the verse of, at the start of verse 8, to the unmarried. And now at the start of verse 10, he's now directing his attention to a different group, to the married. I give this charge, and not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, a little trick here. Let me walk it, you through it again. Just think in terms of what's the issue? What is the main principle that Paul is dealing with here? And how does he apply it in this particular instance? And so again, here's the issue. I want to be godly. I want to be holy. I want to improve or increase somehow my status, my position, my condition in Christ. And so which is better? Is it better to remain married or is it better to get divorced? Now, why would anyone be thinking like this? I think it goes back to the problem, the issue Paul addresses in the first six verses, which is what? There is a significant contingent in the church at Corinth that actually think celibacy is a higher spiritual life. They are ascetics. They actually think that maybe the marital bed is filthy. And that if I really want to be a, a, a really good Christian, and if I really want to grow and do something significant for the Lord, well, no, I can't, I can't participate in that. And so that's the higher life, but I'm already married. And so what should, well, this is a dilemma. What should I do? And there are actually some who are entertaining the notion, perhaps they already have, entertaining the notion of divorcing their spouse so that they can give themselves wholeheartedly to the pursuit of what is in actual fact a lie, an erroneous vision and concept of the Christian life. You know, this, this, this sounds maybe a little crazy for us, but this is actually quite prevalent in the early church. There was an entire movement called Montanism, the Montanists, who did this very thing. They encouraged men and women to leave their spouses, to get divorced, and to live the monastic, ascetic life, because this would lead you to a higher plane of spirituality. And Paul is saying what? To the married, I give this charge. No, no, no. The wife should not separate from her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. And he takes his theme, the principle. Here it is again. God has assigned us and called us to a life. And we are called. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not some super spirituality that you're supposed to pursue. No, to be a Christian is simply to live out our identity in Christ by glorifying him in whatever life he has called us to. And so to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. What does he mean by that? Simply means that the Lord spoke to this issue. Where and when? Mark 10. You can flip over there. You can open it up. Mark 10. And then the Pharisees, they're always picking a fight with the Lord Jesus, right? And they come to him on one particular day. Is it all right for a man to divorce his wife? And what does the Lord Jesus say? He goes right back to the book of beginnings, Genesis. And he makes it clear that before the fall, in that pristine world, the world of innocence, paradise, prior to the fall, 
God created Adam and Eve. And it was God himself who brought them together, whereby they became one flesh. Therefore, whatsoever God has brought together, let no man separate. And so Paul is clearly affirming what? That marriage is good. It's beautiful. It's very good. And the marital bed is lovely as well. And it's to be celebrated. Now, if God has called you to a single life, that's fine. That's what he, the way he has gifted you. But many of us, he's called to a marital life. That's how he's gifted us. And this idea now, some of you married there in the church at Corinth. Well, if I really want to get my act together, if I really want to grow, then I guess that means I need to divorce my spouse. Well, that's, 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 that's completely erroneous. No. Oh, please understand the principle. God has assigned us and called us to a life. We live out our identity in Christ by glorifying God in that life. And now there's a third group. The first, those who are unmarried. The second, those who are married to a believer. And now the third, those who are married to an unbeliever. And it begins in verse 12. And it goes all the way through to the end of verse 16. We're going to approach it again in terms of the issue, the principle, the application but before I do, we need to just get something on the table and out of the way at the outset. All right? Some of you are probably down this road already in your mind. Start of verse 12. Paul writes, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Let's just skip it then. He's just giving his opinion. Right on to, I don't know, some verse where I actually agree with him. And then it will no longer be his opinion. No, that isn't what Paul is saying. He's not giving his opinion. You need to under, we need to interpret the outset of verse 12 in light of the outset of verse 10. What did he say at the start of verse 10? To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. Because you know it's not really my charge. You know that when the Lord Jesus was here on earth, he gave this charge. There, it's here in the Gospels. You can go and you can read it. You have the scriptures. You can read it. You're all aware of this charge. And so I say I'm giving this charge. It's tongue-in-cheek. All I'm really doing is repeating the Lord's charge. But now when he gets to verse 12, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. What's his point? You're not going to find this in Mark. You're not going to find this in John. Because the Lord Jesus never spoke to this issue. But I'm speaking to this issue now. And I'm speaking to this issue as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, what I'm about to say is as authoritative as if Christ himself uttered these words. This is the word of God. And so I, I've, I've, I've encountered some who have played hermeneutical gymnastics with this text based on that statement there, I, not the Lord. But when we simply clear it up in the context, it makes perfect sense. All he is doing is contrasting a previous command, which he they all knew about because the Lord himself said it. Now with a command, an issue that the Lord never addressed while he was here on earth. And so to the rest, I say, and now those who are married to an unbeliever, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him for... Because the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But 
If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Nothing more really you can do about it. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? And husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Okay, three steps again. First is this. What is the issue? What's going on here? What's he dealing with? He is dealing with individuals, men and women, in the church at Corinth, who are thinking to themselves as follows. They've, they've, they've fallen into this idea. They've swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. This idea that there are tears to the spiritual life. And that uh, my advancement in the spiritual life is contingent upon my condition in this world. And marriage could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. And in this particular case, he's addressing those Christians who are in a marriage. A man, for example, a believer who is married to an unbelieving woman, wife. Or conversely, a believing wife who is living married now to an unbelieving husband. Just again, check this. Paul is not envisioning that this is a marriage that a believer would have walked into knowingly. Just fast forward. It's worth addressing this. Right at the end of the chapter, verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So he is not envisioning a Christian who has then sought out an unbeliever and married that unbeliever. He is envisioning a situation in which two unbelievers got married. And then after the marriage, one of them is miraculously, wonderfully, praise God, converted. Well, that's me. What am I supposed to do now? What am I supposed to do? Should I divorce, separate myself from the unbeliever? Well, why would anyone be thinking like this? Again, I think this idea that if I want to arrive at a, at a greater or deeper tier or level of spirituality, well, this unbelieving spouse, they're dead weight, Right? Not just that, as Paul has celebrated in chapter 6. I'm a temple. My body's the temple of the living God. While by being married and participating in the marriage bed with an unbeliever, well, does that have a corrupting, defiling influence upon me? I might, therefore, be better divorcing myself from my spouse. And Paul takes his principle, which is what? I told you a dozen times, I'm probably almost there, God has assigned us and called us to a life. We live out our identity in Christ by glorifying God in whatever that life is. Paul now takes that principle, that command, and he applies it directly to this situation. And his application is this. A believing spouse most certainly should not separate or seek a divorce from his unbelieving spouse. If the unbelieving spouse leaves, verse 15, that's a different matter entirely. It's beyond your control. There's nothing you can do about it. And God has called us to live in peace. But as long as it is within your control and you are in that marriage, no, you are not to separate. You are not to divorce. And it is because of Scripture's High esteem, the high esteem that scripture places on the marital union before God. But interestingly enough, Paul inserts another reason here. And it's right there in verse 14. He writes, for, this is most interesting. The unbelieving husband is made holy. What does that mean? 
because of his wife. Wow. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, you know, if you were to separate, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, obviously, obviously, and this trips a lot of people up when they read the Bible, words are used in different senses in Scripture. And we need to determine the sense of the word from the context. And so how Paul, more often than not, uses this word holy is in reference to believers. To be a believer is to be holy. Because to be holy is to be set apart. It is to be set apart from this world, the, the, the kingdom of darkness. And it is to be transferred, translated to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's beloved son. And so we are set apart and we are made holy. We are made more like the Lord Jesus in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. Well, he most certainly cannot be using the word in that sense, in this context. Because what does he say in verse 16? Wife, how do you know? Whether you will save your husband. Husband, how do you know? Whether you will save your wife. In other words, the verdict is still out. By remaining with that person, you might very well be the means through which they are saved. Meaning what? That when Paul, just a sentence earlier, describes them as holy, he most certainly is not speaking in salvific terms. Because they continue to be what? Unbelievers. So what does he mean by holy, set apart in this context? I think it is simply this. Let's imagine an unbelieving man married to a believing woman. He is made holy because of her. Why? Because he experiences the Holy Spirit at very close quarters. He sees Christ. Every day in his wife, he hears of God's promises from his wife. He hears the gospel from his wife. He sees what the lordship of Christ looks like in his wife. He's exposed to the word of God through his wife. He is made holy. And this, according to verse 16, might very well be the instrument by which God saves him. The same effect, Paul says at the end of verse 14, is felt among their children. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Doesn't mean they're saved. It's the same context. He's using the word in the same sense. What does he mean? that they too now enjoy an extremely privileged position. Oh, what a privilege for a child to be raised in a home in which God is worshipped, in which God's word is honored, God's promises are cherished, God's will is obeyed, even if it's just by one parent. And one parent standing alone. This is Paul's reasoning. This is him taking a very important theme, a very important truth, crafting it by way of a command, and now applying it to these different situations, necessary, needful, because of the prevailing 
confusion in the church at Corinth. Five takeaways. Are you ready? How are we doing for time? Don't look at your watch. I'll look at my watch. Five takeaways. I think we're doing all right for time. Just put that out there. Five takeaways. Here they are. Number one. Five takeaways from this text. Number one, let's rid ourselves, please. I'm speaking to Christians. Let's rid ourselves, rid ourselves, rid ourselves of the notion that there is some sort of super spirituality contingent upon an ideal condition in life. There isn't. It does not exist. There is simply life. And the life to which God has called you and called you to do what? Live for his glory by living out your identity in Christ in that life. There is no ideal condition, whether it be economic status, social status, marital status, whatever, fill in the blank. There is no ideal condition that makes us holier or godlier. Let me apply it even more. Many of us often wonder to ourselves, is there something more to the Christian life? Some silver bullet, right? That if it only figured it out, everything would just, oh, it would just be smooth sailing. Some condition I could arrive at, something I could change, something I could do, something I could be that would somehow make me the Christian I want to be. Oh, some look to a decisive experience that leads to the higher life or the victorious life. They speak of a complete filling, total breaking, or second blessing. It's all misplaced. There's some who look to a particular calling as holding out hope of a closer walk with God. And they turn to the martyr, the monastic, the mystic, the missionary, the minister, as exemplifying some sort of super spirituality. Or some, probably far more common among us, Look to detachment from everyday life as essential to spiritual progress. It is a lie. It is a complete misunderstanding of the Christian faith. They think that release from the mundane and the trivial roles and responsibilities of life will free them to pursue a deeper relationship with God. Oh, if only I wasn't married to him. If only I were married to her. If only I wasn't living here but somewhere else. If only I had that job as opposed to this job. If only I were in full-time missionary, you know, ministry. If only I were a missionary. If only I were healthier. If only this. If only that. If only, if only, if only, if only. I could finally be a Christian I long to be. It's a completely twisted vision of the Christian life. Friend, there's life. You're married to who you're married to, or perhaps you've got the gift of singlehood. It's wonderful, right? Married to a believer, married to an unbeliever. You got the job you've got. You live where you live. Yeah, changes might be possible. A better job might come along. There's no, no problem with pursuing that and uh, making other decisions. No, nothing wrong with that. Paul's not speaking against that. What, Paul, what is Paul speaking against? Paul is speaking to this far too common mindset among God's people that if I could change my circumstances and my conditions, I could be more spiritual. I could be a better Christian. I could arrive at a higher plane of spirituality. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. God has assigned a life to you. He has called you to that life. And you are to lead that life. 
live that life. Living out what it means to be a Christian in that life. And you are to do it for his glory. And so let's rid ourselves of this notion that there is some sort of super spirituality contingent upon an ideal condition in life. Because my friend, there isn't. And you will cause yourself such pain and anxiety. And I don't know what else. If you go through life pursuing the intangible, that which does not exist, you will simply be restless, restless, restless. Here's a second takeaway. Let's hold the institution of marriage in high esteem and strive by all means for reconciliation in our marriages. I think that's an obvious implication of verses 10 through 11. Uh, you know, some of, some of you may be wanting me to get into the whole question of, well, when is it permissible to divorce? When is it permissible to remarry? I'm not going to because Paul doesn't. Uh, there are sermons out there on our church website. You can go back to the sermon series. I went through Mark and I dealt with that in the context of Mark 10. I don't want to deal with it here because I don't want the point of the passage to die the death of a thousand qualifications. There's a point. And the point is what? Be reconciled at all costs. That's the point. Because God esteems the marriage bed and he esteems the marital union and he holds it in such high regard and high esteem because he himself created it and instituted it. And he himself brings man and woman together and he alone declares what I have brought together. Let no man separate. Oh, pursue reconciliation in our marriages. God's saving love in Christ compels us to obey him. His terms of discipleship, please hear this. I may just be speaking to one person. That's fine. His terms of discipleship are not whatever makes us happy. They are not whatever makes me feel good. They are not whatever pleases me. His terms of discipleship are these. Are you ready? You've heard them before. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. We might think our marital problems are beyond hope. Here's what we often forget. Our faith rests on the truth that God raised a dead man from the grave. And if he did that, he can heal broken marriages. Can he not? He most certainly can. Oh, let us hold the institution of marriage in high esteem and strive by all means for reconciliation in our marriages. Here's a third takeaway. Let's help our children to encounter Christ on a regular basis in our words and deeds. I'm taking that out of verse 14, the last part. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy, even exposure to one believing spouse. Oh, what a privilege is theirs. And so let us help our children to encounter Christ, find the gospel regularly in our words and our deeds. A word of caution, a word of exhortation. I nearly said to all you mama bears out there, boy, I'm glad I didn't say that. A word of exhortation to all of you moms, especially out there, Dads as well. Here it is. We need to guard against the prosperity gospel for families. It's a false gospel and it is alive and well today. The prosperity gospel for families. We think, far too many of us, if we read the right books, 
attend the right seminars and adopt the right strategies, God will bless our families just as I envision he will. That's legalism. It is a false gospel. And if that is your mindset, and if that day, God forbid, should come when one of your beloved ones, one of your children does not walk in that way that you have exactly mapped out from him, mapped out for her, there will be great grief accompanying that. But if you have bought into the prosperity gospel for families, you will completely derail. You will unwind because it will touch your pride. It will touch all that you've invested in. It will touch this deal subconsciously you think you've made with God. That if I do this, 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 just get it all right. Cross all my T's, dot all my I's, all will be well. It is a false gospel of prosperity for families. No, we recognize our calling as parents. Oh, it's a high calling. It's a divine calling. It's a wonderful calling. And yes, our children should be made holy as they are exposed to Christ through us. And so, yes, we lead them in family worship. Sure. We acquaint them with the works of God. That's wonderful. We encourage them in the habit of seeking God. Very important. We involve them in the church's worship. We live out the gospel before them. And then we simply commit them to the Lord. Commit them to the Lord. Let's help them, though, to encounter Christ on a regular basis in our words and our deeds. Here's the fourth takeaway. Let's not lose sight of the possibility that we might save our lost family member. Verse 16. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? You might. You might save him. Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? You. You might do it. Now you're thinking to yourself, hold on a second, I don't save anybody. Quite right, God alone saves. What's Paul's point? That the believing spouse might be the instrument through which God saves. And so let us not lose sight of the possibility that we might save our lost family member. We might be the very means, the instrument God uses to save our lost son, our lost wife grandfather, aunt, cousin, neighbor. Perhaps this individual will see us, our patience under fire, perhaps. Our gentleness in conflict, perhaps. They might hear our testimony. They might see our honesty in the workplace. They might see our perseverance under dire circumstances. They might note our compassion, our love, and just maybe this might be the instrument our sovereign God uses to awaken that individual as to the truth of the gospel, the reality of heaven and hell, and of the saving work of Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. And here's the fifth, fifth takeaway. Let's please stay focused on who we are in Christ. Stay focused on who we are in Christ. The Corinthian believers, to a great extent, have lost sight of their identity in Christ. And as a result, they are a church in crisis. If you've learned anything to this point, 
I pray you've learned that. It's going to continue with us right to the end of the epistle. This is a church in crisis. It's a church in crisis because it's full of believers who no longer know who they are in Christ, and they are living accordingly. Oh, who are we as Christians? And do we live accordingly? We are called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is our identity and our calling is to live out our identity in whatever circumstances God has placed us for his and for his alone glory. Our heavenly father, give us eyes to see this day, to see the beauty of grace, the wonder of your mercy, to see the eternal worth of the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us upon Calvary's cross. Oh, how dependent we are upon your spirit, especially as we deal with portions of scripture that appear quite complexing and confounding. And so we pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to apply, that your word might indeed be implanted deep within. May it be for our good, for your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.